0: Professor Sievert, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Why don't we start with your background? Where'd you start off, uh, your career so far, and what you're doing now?
1: Yeah, so I'm currently an associate professor at Texas Tech. I just started, uh, I believe this is year seven. It starts to sort of blur after a while. My PhD is from the University of Georgia. Um, After that, I spent some time, uh, I spent a year at uh, Duke University as a postdoctoral fellow uh, before coming over to Texas Tech. Um, My sort of interest in political science was largely sort of focused on Congress and American institutions, both sort of modern and historically.
0: Where were you before Georgia? Because you don't seem like you have a Georgian accent.
1: (laughs) No, I do not. Um, So I grew up in Nebraska. I did my undergraduate at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, then, sort of, bounced around. I was in Missouri for a little bit um, before heading back down to Georgia. Um, so, sort of, mostly the Midwest, um, but I spent probably the last third or so
0: in the South. And so, what brought you into political science to begin with? And, you know, why did you focus on Congress in particular?
1: Yeah. So, I my initial dream was to be a political journalist. Um, and I realized. I think probably like my sophomore year that I I hated cold calling people to ask them questions because they weren't always agreeable. Um, And so I sort of had to kind of figure out, well, what is it I I want to do instead? Um, I had taken some political science classes and um, very much enjoyed them. Um, I sort of enjoyed thinking through the various problems that the discipline sort of addresses and um, thinking more systematically about how our institutions work. And so I uh, ended up switching majors. I actually kept the journalism degree, but I added on the political science degree and uh, kind of quickly realized I wanted to go to graduate school and um, do this sort of more formally. Um, had some some very helpful sort of supportive f- faculty in undergrad that really sort of encouraged me and pushed me. and. Um, yeah, the rest is sort of history, as they say.
0: So when it comes to Congress, you know, what are the broad areas of your interest as it relates to Congress? And then we can kind of dive into some of the ones more specifically published on recently, but what are the areas of Congress that you've kind of focused your work on? The core of what I'm
1: interested really comes back to elections. So I'm interested in, um, the way I like to describe it is you can think about elections as an outcome or you could think about them as an input, right? So we could sort of study Why do elections go the way that they do? Um, Or you could think about, well, how do elections influence what goes on in the legislature itself? Um, And that's really what sort of drew me into political science, was sort of thinking about both of those sides, how they interact, um, what we can learn um, by sort of trying to integrate them. I think, like many disciplines, we sometimes sort of silo those things off. Not entirely, right, but it, it can be very easy to... Look at you know elections in isolation. Look at the institution in isolation, um, and so I was very much interested in that interaction between them.
0: So why don't we dive then into this concept of you know the the elections or at least the incentives as they relate to uh, the the elections themselves? Can you talk through what's the research you've done? Kind of what questions did you ask and what what did you find?
1: Yeah. So if we think about so there's a a very sort of ubiquitous theory, uh, this idea of the electoral connection um, that David Mayhew pioneered about five decades ago now. Um, but if you sort of break that down into its sort of underlying parts, there's there's different criteria that we might need to might need to be met. Subsequent work has kind of looked at each of those in isolation. And so one of the things that I've been interested in is to try to think about, looking at these systematically and especially in both sort of modern, but also historical context. So we can think about how things, for instance, like political ambition is is sort of central to, right? People have to want to continue to serve in politics. And, you know, what does that look like today? What does that look like historically and how might that influence their decision-making? You can also think about things like electoral accountability, right? Under what conditions are members held accountable for what they do in office? Um, So the sort of first, length project I worked on was looking at each of these sort of sub components of this larger theory across time. And it was the sort of thing that worked well as a book because, you know, you have to bring little bits of evidence to bear. It's hard to sort of look at them all in one case because they may not all be sort of operating at any one time, but sort of thinking about how does that, what does that look like? How does the structure of Congress how does the structure of institutions outside of Congress, how do all of these different things influence the decision making and the behavior of individual members?
0: So, you know, it's interesting because from my perspective, you know, if you're a member and you're in Congress, you should be focused on the legislative and representative job rather than the next election. So for me, the thinking about the next election is kind of like a, a different job. It's the job outside of Congress, not the and it shouldn't influence what you're doing inside Congress. Uh, so I'm curious, you know, for me, this is kind of an interesting perspective and I know it's a it's a classic one. Um, so can you talk about just how does it play out day to day in the mind of a member, whether they're on their own or whether they're in committee or whether they're in leadership, this concept of re-election and how does it play out and what kind of contributions did you kind of make in that space?
1: I think one of the things that you know, when we think about the electoral incentive, or we think about, for instance, a term like ambition. Um, you know, ambition is a is an interesting one because it has such negative connotation as we tend to sort of think about it and use it colloquially. Um, but, you know, if we think about ambition as sort of a motivator, if you want to keep this office, well, one of the things you have to then do is you have to be responsive. Um, and so one of the, Joseph um, Schlesinger has a, a very sort of classic book on ambition. And one of the things he points out is we probably would be equally, if not more, troubled by a system where there's no ambition, right? Because if no one's ambitious, they have no incentive, then no desire, they don't care about keeping their job. Well, maybe they have little incentive to actually respond to and think about people who have elected them and what it is that they want. So you know it's it's sort of that fine balance of you know, you want ambition. You want people to care about future elections. But, you know, there is that fine line. And so, I you know, I think the, the great example of this in the modern Congress is we think about the amount of time dedicated to fundraising. You know, you hear members talk about the amount of time they have to spend calling donors and complaining about it. And, you know, it's it's hard to, to know what to make of people who are retiring or, or voluntarily leaving, right? Because, um, But, you know, a lot of them have pointed this out. Like, I spent so much time fundraising, it just it wasn't fun anymore. This is not what I wanted to do. So, you know, I think that's a, a case where it's easy to say, well, maybe electoral incentives are a problem. Maybe they sort of push us away from the f- fundamental job at, at hand. However, right, part of that electoral incentive is, well, the people who elected me here elected me to do something. They have preferences over policy. And part of my job as a representative is to see those things enact, right? That's also part of. That sort of electoral incentive. Um, so it can mean many things and it can sort of manifest in many different ways. Um, but, you know, I think at its its core, it really comes down to a concern about to what extent are representatives sort of behaving in a way that is consistent with preferences and sort of views of those who elected them. Now, that's a really oversimplification, of course, um, and it's, it's not going to capture the totality. But um I think you know that's from that's the sort of more encouraging sort of view of how elections might incentivize members.
0: The problem though, in in that case is that if you're focused on re-election and you know that um you can win an election with 51% of the vote, then your tendencies would be to represent those 51% rather than the 49%. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you define representation as as uh, representing everyone in the district, then um, you've got an incongruity there between the ones that you're working for and the ones that in theory you should be working for. So how do you see that play out? Do you see, you know, when you have such a strong incentive for members to be focused on winning, Mm. that means they have to focus their attention on those people who are going to get them back in the seat rather than all of their constituents. So do you see that as a as an issue in your research where those 49% get underrepresented in that case because they're not contributing to the members' reelection?
1: Right. This is one of the fundamental challenges of of any representative relationship, right? You can't represent everyone. Um, you know, Hannah Pitkin mentions this point about when we think about representation, one of the key components is what gets left out. Because there's always something left out, right? There's no way around it. So, you know, that that kind of leads us down I mean, an empirical path in the sense of, you know, there are folks that look at is the representational relationship different between voters and non-voters for instance, right? And who, who do you follow in that scenario? Um as a normative question, I don't know that I have an answer for that. As an empirical question, you know, yeah, I think there's pretty compelling evidence that when push comes to shove, you don't represent all 100% of people. Now, part of that is there's no way to do it. There's no there's there's no in certain contexts, but there's no way that you're gonna satisfy hundred percent of the people all the time. Um and I, you know, when push comes to shove, well, who do you who do you follow? Yeah, I think we would sort of not be surprised to find that yes, historically you follow people that agree with you already. You follow people that are actively engaged in politics, right? Um, that there is this bias toward those who give money, that those who are involved. Um, however, you know, I don't know that, you know, even if we remove electoral incentives, right, some of those pressures presumably would still be there because they're going to align with other other pressures or, is you know, it's very. It can be difficult, right, to sort of causally prove it. Are you necessarily agreeing with these people because they gave you money and they voted for you, or did they give you money and vote for you because they agree? You know, they agreed with you. So, as an empirical matter, you know, so we can we can document these relationships, but I think it's it's also very hard to know what the counterfactual world would look like in a certain senses, right? Of like when you have these dyadic relationships, you know, a one member, a constituency, you have to make choices and, you know, we can find consistency in what those choices look like, but it's not always clear how or what you could do to change those, I guess, might be the, you know, might be one way to sort of think about it.
0: And how does the behavior differ if a member is retiring um, versus if they're going to run again? I mean, do you see a, have you done the work there and does it look radically different or does it matter if the members so-called retiring, but they're immediately going to K street versus they're retiring and literally like going to hang out at home and not do any further work. Yeah, no,
1: I, this is not an area that I have personally done research in the modern context. I know there are folks right that do look at that. And I think that's kind of one of the interesting questions when we think about removing those electrons. Then. So, historically yeah you you do find patterns right that when people are no longer tied to the need to get re-election they might behave a little differently now sometimes that might mean you know they are more likely to side with the party right they're they're on their way out they're willing to cast you know, a vote for the party so especially when we're you know we just went through a period where the election's over but congress is still meeting so that sort of lame duck session and you might expect that some folks who maybe you wouldn't have been inclined to cast that vote for the party would. So that might be one of the things that we could see happen. But I do think you raise an interesting point. That's a sort of an interesting wrinkle in what we're seeing now in terms of when you exit through a way other than just, you know, I'm going home to spend time with my family. I'm leaving to go be a lobbyist, right? That's a very different dynamic. Um, And it's one that I don't know if, you know, I, th- I think people have looked at this more systematically, like the staff level, right? Because there's more back and forth, there's more turnover, there's just not necessarily the amount of turnover yet at, at the member level. So it, it's sort of one of those areas where I think it would there's a lot of interesting work to be done, um, and sort of a, an interesting area for future research. But we have anecdotal cases, but we don't have, you know, enough systematic data yet on what that looks like. But my intuition would be that, yeah, those p- folks should look different, right they They have a fundamentally different interest than the person that is leaving political life altogether. Um, and that should inform their behavior. It should lead them to look a little different.
0: So you mentioned ambition is one of these uh, core elements. Are there other elements you investigated in your book that are worth uh, discussing here around the incentives?
1: So we can sort of break the electoral connection in general down to far. So ambition is, is a key component. Um, autonomy is another, and this is one that I think we don't give as much thought to right now. So does a member have control over their political future? Can they cho- continue to choose to serve in Congress? Can they make that choice for themselves? Um, most of the cases today, that that's easily satisfied because we have institutions in place that really allow members to have control over their own future. Historically, that was not always the case. So if you go back to the 19th century, uh, we had a set of institutions where parties had a lot more control over the nomination itself. Um, So this is the sort of thing if you went outside the US context, for instance, right, and you're in a a system, like a a parliamentary system, where parties have a lot more control over who runs, that might be one that would be more relevant. Next, we can think about sort of responsiveness. So how do how does a member handle or go about the job of representing the preferences, the sort of economic interests of their constituents? Uh, in many respects, this is one that's probably received the most work. Um, it's sort of the one that I've probably spent the most time thinking about. Uh, I'm sort of currently working on a book project that looks at this in the context of the early Senate, which was... A fundamentally different set of institutions, but I think raises sort of going back to one of the points you raised earlier, raises some interesting questions about how do members go about their job of, of being a representative? You know what what issues get brought to bear uh, when they are picking committee assignments, when they're casting votes, um, and then the last component we can think about is electoral accountability. So to what extent do individuals of hold their members accountable for what they actually do in office Um, and there's a lot of ways that you can sort of think about that the sort of most straightforward is you know if you vote in such a way that you cast a vote or you engage in some sort of action that um, is out of step with your constituents do they actually punish you do they actually vote against you Um, in sort of the modern context that's sort of been an interesting question part because we are in such a polarized environment sort of wondering or sort of investigating the extent to which, you know, do people actually hold folks accountable now? Um, Is that something that's still operational in this sort of more polarized system? Or are people just queuing on partisanship, right? And if you're on my team, I like you, I'm going to vote for you. If you're not on my team, I don't like you, I'm going to vote against you. Um, And so that's that's an area where I've, I've started to do a little bit more work. And I think some other folks are sort of doing really interesting work with that as well to sort of Think about because again that has really important implications for the overall representational system too because if you know you can do whatever no one's going to punish you you know so think about you know since it just happened the speaker election some of those folks probably are not going to face any blowback I mean some of them might but you know some of them may face zero blowback for what they did um, because of pervasive partisanship because right they're from maybe they're from districts where people agreed with. That vote, right? They didn't want Eric. uh, They didn't want um, McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy, to be the speaker, Um, you know. And so, if we think about Congress as a representative institution, I think that's one of the really interesting areas where we're we're really having to grapple with right now.
0: Mm -hmm. And when you say accountability, um, I'm curious what you mean because, on the one side, you could mean does a member's votes comport with the majority of what their constituents, you know, believe, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Or did they do the job well is a different, totally different question. So I'm curious what you mean when you say accountability, you mean accountability to the, to the views expressed by the constituents, or do you mean done a good job as defined by some other measure in Congress?
1: Yeah. So I think canonically we would think about the sort of the easiest way to think about it would be that sort of definition of your constituents have a certain set of preferences. Did you, did you represent those? Or if you were out of step with those preferences, were you held accountable? Um, I think the other sort of component of that, of, right, did you do a good job as a representative? Um, so one of the, I think, the sort of interesting things when folks look at, so the implication of accountability, right, is that you get punished, but also you could be rewarded for doing a good job. Mostly, what we found is that people don't get rewarded for doing a good job. You might get punished if you do something that's not good, but you're not necessarily rewarded for being a a good representative per se. Um, at least, right? Maybe when it comes to like voting. Um, you know, historically, I think we could maybe think about you know things like casework that maybe you would get rewarded and that might fall more so in a like a sort of general it's not necessarily policy so it's not accountability and that sort of in step out of step it's you're literally helping right your constituents navigate the federal bureaucracy for instance um, and you might get rewarded for that um but at least on sort of a like looking at members sort of policy behavior they don't there doesn't tend to be evidence of that reward based incentive And when we start talking about things like casework, again, given a a much more polarized environment, it's less clear that those sorts of things get rewarded today either because, sure, maybe you helped someone get through the bureaucracy, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to vote for you if you are not from their party. That's, That's one component of what they could maybe weigh, but that's not the only component. There could be these other considerations.
0: I'm curious about this constituent service piece historically. Has it been important to re-election? I, you know, you have two members, one who doesn't do any constir- constituent service. The other one spends all the resources doing you know, constituent service. Does it matter? Does it have an outcome? And if so, what's the magnitude of that?
1: Yeah. So historically, so if we think back to sort of, again, when sort of David Mayhew was first writing and sort of the work that came after him and sort of right around the 70s, maybe the early 80s, yeah, there was a lot of investigation and sort of looking at the role of these sort of non-policy factors right this are sort of these things that are they don't have to explicitly be about partisanship or about policy and the potential benefits that could accrue from that and there was pretty consistent evidence that yes this is and again if you we don't necessarily have the same sort of you know sort of survey evidence but if you look back throughout congress's history right this has been an Sort of a thing that they constantly do. we can look back to the Revolutionary War and sort of their role in getting pensions for you know, for soldiers or for widows, whatever the case may be. However, if you sort of again look at this in a sort of more pol- the more polarized environment we're in today, um again it's less clear that it pays those same dividends. Now, part of that might be sort of preferences or expectations. So you know, there have been some work at that looked sort of at questions about, well, do the parties want the same things from their members of Congress? Um, right. So if you are, let's say you're a Republican who sort of doesn't want wasteful government spending, maybe you're less likely to reward them for that sort of bringing, bringing projects back to the district. Um, again, in the sort of more recent context, again, the sort of bigger challenge is, okay, so if I bring something back to the district, is that necessarily going to win over someone from the other party? You know, party line voting somewhere around 90 to 95%. Not really a lot of people you can move. Now, maybe in a close election, it matters. Um, but, you know, there was a case uh, in West Virginia where, so West Virginia loses, um, lost a congressional district. You have two Republicans who get, uh, have to face off in the primary. And one of the sort of interesting points that some folks talked about was, you know, one was sort of build a brand around being loyal to President Trump. One built a brand around bringing back stuff to the bringing things home to the district the person that built the brand around the party was the one that actually won um and again that sort of flies in our the face of what we would maybe have expected from sort of several decades back where bringing home stuff to your district was very valuable and it's less clear that it is today that it pays those same dividends um so one of the questions i think we have to ask and that folks are, are I mean, really starting to investigate in interesting ways is, well, what is it that people actually want? Right? How, what is it they want from their members of Congress? You know, do they want them to represent them substantively on policy? Do they want them to be active in the chamber? Or do they want them to you know, be partisans and to sort of fight that good partisan fight? Um, obviously, the answer isn't the same for for every constituent. Um, but that is, I think an important component of when we think about electoral incentives, or we think about, you know, what is it a representative is supposed to do that, that has to be an important part of the story, right? Because that suggests that the, the incentive structure isn't going to be the same for everyone, or that it's just fundamentally changing across
0: time. So it it seems like, at least according to the electoral side, that there's very little incentive doing legislation. Um, and Maybe we're lucky if a, a member is ambitious to be a chairman of a committee or to be a leader, in which case they might do more around legislation, if that is important interior to the chamber. Have you looked at those kinds of incentives as well? like, You know, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, you know, your colleagues to get a higher position inside the chamber. And does that balance some of these like more posturing style incentives from the from the district?
1: So I think, you know, so there's sort of two things to consider. One is, right, obviously not all committees are the same, but they're not all created equal, right? So, I mean, there are committees that are going to be electorally relevant, but also, right, from a very much a constituency perspective, right? So the ag committee right, is a great example. Um, that's one where you can kind of service both of those needs, right? Um, now, what that might then suggest is that, you know, right, the utility of of ways and means, right, as an electoral component, isn't isn't going to be very high. Now, I don't think that's new, and that's why you know I think if we so the thing I, I love about the electoral connection is it's a very simple theory, and it can explain a lot, it can't explain everything, right? And so I think you know, this is something that the author you know, very readily concedes, and I think anyone who studies more the electoral side will also consider there are clearly other goals people are motivated by other things um right so it's very clear that members are motivated by policy at least right some of them right there's not all elections all of the time um and some of them are motivated by right institutional positions of power there are members who get in there and they want to climb the sort of party ranks. right they want to be committee chairs um Again, the simplicity, I think, of the, or the sort of nice parsimonious response from the sort of electoral connection side is, well, you can't have those other two things if you don't satisfy the electoral component first. Yeah, I, I am partial to that explanation, um, partially for simplifying reasons. But again, if we want to realistically understand Congress, we can't ignore those other two. Right? And so that's where we, you know, we can pick out members. right? We can think about, yeah, there are clearly members who are motivated by more than just the electoral incentive. That's not going to give us a full summation of Congress. It can explain a lot, but it can't explain the whole story. Um, and so you, you, know, you do have to sort of factor those other considerations in as well. Um, one would certainly hope that you would not go through all the trouble of getting elected to Congress if you had no concerns about policy, right? Presumably there's there's something there um the question i think becomes well what happens when those things are in tension right? and what do you do um again historically we might expect that you would side with ele- the electoral incentive over the policy incentive today it might be the case that those are more closely aligned than they were in the past right given sort of more polarized parties um in the sort of more modern Congress as well, if we think about institutional sort of positions of power, right, the parties have set up the incentives in such a way that, right, for instance, raising money for the campaign committees can be one of the ways that you, right, sort of raise, rise through the ranks. Um, so again, there it's easy to think about these goals as separate, but at some level, I think they do kind of tie back or bleed into at least some of these electoral motivations as well.
0: Well, let's move on to some of your work on on committees. You know, I know you've you've looked at committees and you've looked at the role of party and committees and over time, can you talk through the work you've done on committees? what questions did you have, and what answers did you find?
1: Yeah. Um, so one of the things that is sort of a, a constant debate uh, amongst congressional scholars might be you know the relative weight of committees versus parties. Um, both of them provide, a useful way to structure a legislature um, in the sense of you have some entity that right, limits the number of things we're going to consider and makes it sort of more manageable. So in the case of committees, we're, right, we're taking the legislative agenda and we're breaking it up into smaller parts so that we can sort of deal with this policy area by itself and not having to you know try to decide uh, all of the sort of policy agenda on the floor. Parties gonna you know, play a similar role, but rather than committees, you're having sort of parties and party leadership make those decisions. So there is sort of this, this sort of fundamental tension and this sort of back and forth between the two of them. We've seen both of them be central to how Congress organizes. And the sort of question is what's the relative balance? And that's part of what has sort of motivated um, some of my own work, especially in sort of thinking about this historically, because Neither parties nor committees were really necessarily there in the form that we see them today at the start. And so the sort of question becomes well, both of these things end up developing over time and sort of what's the trade-off um, between the two? Within that, you sort of also can sort of look at how committees help members further rate their own interests. Again, whether it be any three of those things that I just mentioned, electoral policy, um or institutional influence Um, and i think the big lesson you know if we want to sort of look at again this most recent speaker vote part of the debate there and part of the contention there was the role of committees right how powerful will the committees be vis-a-vis the speaker and we've gone through several decades now of speakers have become increasingly powerful and that's not to say that committees don't have some power but they don't have maybe the power that they had in the 70s and the 80s um and so not surprisingly, right, we're now in an era where there's sort of tension between the party and and its rank and file. Committees become one of those flashpoints and they want to pull back some of that power. And you know, that sort of fits very well with what we know about that trade-off and that tension between those two entities within the legislative chamber.
0: And so in committees themselves, how do you see it play out the incentives of party versus uh, their electoral incentives even on the you know for instance the ag committee you mentioned earlier there you have a you know you probably have those tensions play out to some extent you know anything interesting that you found in your research related to those and, and does it matter you know does it make a big difference the size of the committee or you know what kind of committee it is
1: yeah so you know i think one of the sort of interesting tradeoffs offs you might have is sort of norms or expectations about how central party might be to the committee makeup. Um, again, the sort of defining characteristic in part of things like sort of pork barrel politics or casework is that this is not an inherently a partisan activity. Uh, and so you had some committees that were probably more insulated from those pressures, but as party has become more ubiquitous, that starts to sort of seep into committee politics in areas where maybe it hadn't been there before. And so you start to see these, I wouldn't say that they were necessarily bipartisan before, but committees that were not as much a partisan vehicle sometimes become, can become a more partisan vehicle. Um, Again, I don't think that that's where the current sort of tension is in terms of, of drawing our back for the committees is not necessarily we need to make them more bipartisan it's more there's there's conflict within the party about how to use the committees or what how individuals want to go about the role of that of sort of committee investigations committee hearings markup whatever the case may be um so it it is different in that sense i think where um the pullback is not because you know, there's some sort of coalition of moderates that are wanting to sort of bring power back to the floor. It's more so a, we disagree about what the party's direction should be. And so we want to have more control so that we can use the committees as we sort of see or think that the party mission should be.
0: What about the role of transparency in the committees? You know, I'm I'm interested because if if a committee, for instance, was you know, did everything in a private way instead of a public way, right? That would, according to this discussion of electoral connection, might have some kind of neutralizing effect on members catering to specific whims of their constituencies. But meanwhile, that activity on the on the committee might be transparent to their party. And so it might in, increase the, you know, the influence of party and committees versus, you know, uh, constituent types of communications through the through the committee system. So, have you looked thought or at all about the role of transparency and how it impacts those various incentives?
1: Yeah, so I think right transparency can sort of cut both ways uh, in a certain sense, right? And again, I think the speaker vote is a good example of this. Um, there was some discussion. There were some folks that were pointing out, like, look, other systems, so parliamentary systems with coalition governments, for instance, right, they run into this problem where you've got a narrow majority, you need to construct a governing majority, but they don't have the sort of public votes in the way that we did for the speaker election. Um, And so you have a lot of that same messiness, but it just doesn't play out for the the public to see. Um, And so the question became: well, would that lead to a faster resolution? Maybe not necessarily, but again, you know, would it would we be in a better place if we had not seen right, however many days we ended up with right, multiple days of voting? Um, you know, in terms of sort of confidence in the government, maybe. Um, on the other hand, you know, I think there is an argument to be made that you know, the public has an incentive, has a, has a reason to sort of want to see that play out and wants to see or how that unfolds, because that is valuable information, right? Um, and we'll, we'll see how, uh, you know, it certainly drew a lot of attention. We'll see how much that continues on, but, right, I mean, it's very much a precursor for what we're likely to face, right? Like, this is, those internal tensions aren't going away. And I do think that there is value in having had that beyond sort of public display, um, That's the general public, have a you know a short memory though maybe you know maybe they'll be surprised but you know I do think it there is value in seeing that you know we're we're likely heading into right, some fun showdowns over the debt limit and government shutdowns right like these are all sort of sort of a clear signal of what's likely to come um and I think there's value in seeing that but on the other side of that right the fact that these members, could take those public stands, right? Some of them were fundraising off of it right away. Um, and in a way that they couldn't have done if this was behind closed doors. Or I mean, they could have done, right? They could have still said, you know, I'm fighting the good fight. Give me money to help me keep fighting um, McCarthy. But that's still very sort of different than, you know, I get these two minute sound bites where I get to stand up and right, be the center of attention. Um, so I don't, you know, it's one of those things where there's, there's benefit, but in certain scenarios, right? People can still hijack these moments of transparency and and use them for their own sort of goals and their own sort of ends. Um. So there, you know, I I guess sort of pros and cons depending on again depending on how individual members decide to treat this more sort of transparent, more open system potentially.
0: Right. Well, let's move on to the the subject of um you know these procedural rules that i think you've done some research on particularly as it relates to the senate you know the senate has rules and procedures but i guess most people don't understand what they are and even if you do understand what they are they never use them they use you know unanimous consent to move things most things through the senate anyway so can you talk through you know what's the what have you done on this procedural side of things in the senate and what did you learn through that how does it work and and what are the what are the interesting things you've learned from your historical studies?
1: One of the things I think that sets so we're thinking about Senate procedure. One of the things that sets Senate procedure apart from House procedure is and because it has so many of these supermajority requirements. Um, its procedure is more designed around keeping things off of the floor rather than bringing things to the floor. So if we talk about house procedure. A lot of what has developed is it's developed in such a way that you allow a majority to get sort of control what gets to the floor. So think about a special rule, and all you need in theory is a majority to side with whatever the rule is, and it brings the bill to the floor. And then after the fact, if they don't maybe like the underlying bill, they can still vote against it. Right? So they can sort of serve both both of their competing masters. Right? You can help the party out but you can then vote against the bill if it's not in your own interest. In Senate, a lot of it is we need a supermajority to bring stuff to the floor. And so one of the really fascinating things about that procedure then is that the sort of strategic decisions about um, well, how do we get things or how do we get position-taking votes, for instance. Well, I can't get a bill to the floor, but I can still, through procedural means, get sort of something that i can claim is close to. So you've seen both parties do this where they know they don't have the votes, but they'll call a cloture vote because it gives them a chance to, right, sort of position take. That also takes up time, right? So you're you're intentionally doing this to sort of get your position out there. But in doing so, you're you're making a choice about if i do this, there's something else that i can't get onto the legislative agenda. Um and so again, you sort of face these trade-offs between you know pursuing actual policy goals versus using uh, sort of the institution as it's constructed to to take positions to sort of meet electoral ends. Um, sort of more recently, I think what's been really fascinating as well is uh, we you know we've we've had these uh, reform reforms by ruling of the chair um, for nominations, for instance. Um and you know it parties haven't sat back and sort of just uh said, oh well, you know, now it's just a simple majority. We're just out of luck. You know, now the response is, well, okay, fine, we'll just call a cloture vote on everything. So, you know, we we got some progress. <laughs> we made a step forward in, in a sort of sense of right being able to get a vote on something. But you know, you still have rules that are set up in such a way that they can be exploited. So even if you get cloture, there's still 30 hours of post-cloture debate. So the response has been, well, we'll just call cloture motions on everything, even non-controversial nominations, because that's 30 hours of debate that I just ate up. Um, so you know, we've we've sort of seen this piecemeal sort of workarounds, and it's in some ways it's 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 made it more efficient. Right? We are getting more nominations through, but it hasn't fix the underlying issue, which is that any one individual member has quite a bit of power potentially to control the agenda. Um, And in a very polarized chamber, you can imagine it doesn't take a whole lot to, to really eat up a lot of time very, very quickly.
0: I'm curious about your position on holds. You know, as we're discussing this, I'm thinking about this kind of obstructive behavior as it relate, and the reason they're doing it is for messaging right um and that seems to be what you're what you're pointing out here and you know it, it's interesting that holds are an obstructive behavior um but they're not necessarily public so i'm curious about the nature of the holds compared to the what they do in public and whether there's a well, there's a big difference between those two things is that something that you've looked at at all uh in you know as it relates to you know their behavior because you have different incentives if it's transparent or not
1: yeah so it's not something that I personally have looked at it is something that folks do look at right there is a lot of research on holds again I think one of the you know like with closure roads like one of the concerns I think has been, how much of it is sort of genuine policy objections versus how much of it is intentional obstruction, right, sort of grandstanding, whatever the case may be, right? And that's, again, when we think about some of sort of the breakdowns, if you will, in Senate procedures or nomination politics recently, you know, it, it gets hard to draw that line because you know there can be legitimate, reasonable disagreements about a nominee. And that's a very valid reason maybe to place a hold. But there can also be sort of just pure obstructionist reasons. And as with sort of any strategy, it can be taken to a point where it gets arguably abused. Right. And now it's not about actually sort of debating the merits, it's about gumming up the works. Um one of the when I lecture on things like nomination politics around nominations, especially the procedural side. The thing that I always tell my students, and I think this is very, very true, there's no, by and large, right, there's no principled position when it comes to these these matters, right? It's about politics. It's about, does this benefit my side or not? And you will see, right, the member that gets up and complains about nomination politics, procedural politics, whatever the case may be. One Congress, once they're in the majority, they they have a fundamentally different position on the matter, and vice versa if they're going from the majority to the minority. Again, the problem that I think we find ourselves in now is that members are you know they're very willing to exploit those tools when it serves their their partisan interests, even if the underlying policy. Again, you'll see procedural or culture votes now, where the nominee passes with hundred percent of them. 100 votes and so no objection the whole reason you had the cloture vote in the first place was it delayed the process and if you delay that non-controversial nominee that's 30 hours that can't be spent right on something else um you know i think that's the whether it's holds whether it's anything that's sort of the more sort of concerning thing i guess perhaps one might say is you know what happens when norms start to break down, right? And a lot, so things like culture, a lot of this operated under norms about sort of when it was appropriate to use these things, but that was all that was constraining members. And if the norm breaks down for whatever reason, you know, partisanship changes and uh, sort of the, the institutional rules, all of a sudden, right, now members have new and exciting ways that they can sort of use these these tools at their disposal to sort of stall the agenda.
0: I'm curious about, from the historical point of view, when the Senate and the House were smaller, whether that presented a different set of circumstances. I would think, as the Senate gets larger, it's harder to enforce norms, right? If you have a small group of people, or maybe it's the other way around. Who knows? Maybe it's more freewheeling when it's smaller. But you know, the I would think that there's a fundamental difference between there being, you know, 20 senators versus 100. Um, because you can have personal relationships with everyone, you know you can get things done. There's a different, there's a lower barrier to communication, you know. So, do you have any kind of insights as the size changed, whether that influenced any of these factors?
1: Yeah, you know, I think the political science work, for instance, on like collective decision making would tell you that yeah, as group size increases, harder to reach collective decisions. So right, there is that component of it. And however, I think if you look back. You know a lot of the same right, sort of issues, partisan obstruction, for instance, or just general legislative obstruction. Like that's not new. Maybe it took a slightly different form, um, but you know, we have pretty clear evidence of the, of this happening well back into the nineteenth century. Um, so it, it, I would say that maybe it takes a different form. It's maybe you know taken a slightly different form over time, um, but the sort of core of problem I think has still always been there regardless of the size of the chamber. I will say that one of the sort of interesting historical quirks about the Senate is so part of why the Senate finds itself where it is today is in the early 19th century they got rid of what's known as the previous question. Um, Now it wasn't quite used for how it's used today right so now today and especially in the House sort of one of the ways that we can sort of end debate on an issue move on to whatever matter was before us. And that's really how the House has come to use it. It's a way to sort of cut off debate or move to whatever the question uh, underlying question is. Well, the Senate gets rid of it in the early 19th century because they're so small. And they say, well, we don't really need it. Um, you now, at that time, it was used differently. So it wasn't really, doesn't it, you know. it took time before the House sort of developed it into that tool to cut off debate. But it was a sort of function of, well, we're a small chamber. We don't really have these sorts of problems. But again, flash forward another 200 years, and all of a sudden, removing that rule in 18, I think it was 1806, has had really profound consequences for the trajectory of the Senate. Um, And again, and the one thing I will say as well is if you sort of look back at sort of the general debate about how should we construct the Senate, how should we construct the House, um, there's a whole host of factors that come into that. But one of the sort of concerns was, you know, we don't want the Senate to become too large, you know, you do want to keep it as a smaller body, which is how you end up with a sort of two senators instead of, you know, some larger number. um. So I think, you know, there was, there was some sort of recognition that you wanted a body that was hopefully more deliberative, but maybe those plans, those sort of hopes met the reality of once it got time to govern, you know, people sort of still exploited the rules in the same sort of ways that they do today. Um, And again, the house has had its own sort of um, sort of experiences with this. Um, So again, I sort of in conclusion, we say it's more a matter of sort of degree than of the sort of general form. Uh, What we're seeing today um, is somewhat of a historical outlier. It's not like there's no analogy, um, but um, it is sort of a problem that has been in, has been there well before the House or so the Senate reached its current size.
0: Great. Well, I think it's time for us to move on to our second phase of the discussion where I ask you questions I've asked all the rest of our guests. So, are you ready to move on to the next phase? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we talked quite a bit about this, but I'd like to get your personal opinion this time. You know, what do you think it should be? You know, what do you think congressional representation should mean? Is it all your constituents? Is it part of your constituents? Is it the primary, you know, the primary voters? And in what way should they, should members represent those districts? So they just reflect their views like we sort of talked about earlier, or should they be making their own judgments on what's the best interest for their constituents?
1: Yeah. So this is in some ways a question I spent a lot of time thinking about, uh, but yet without coming up maybe with a clear cut answer. Um, so, I, you know, I guess I don't know what I would say the, I sort of think the, the ideal form should be and how they face those trade-offs. And I think that's rooted in part with sort of starting with the sort of recognition that right, we have no way of satisfying everyone. So I think in an ideal world, right, when there is a clear-cut right, sort of majority, you would hope that members, like representation in my mind would be, I follow sort of the clear-cut
0: majority. When you say follow, uh, you mean whatever they happen to feel like voting on a particular bill, you should reflect that vote.
1: Yes. Right. So, like, in a, and again, that's so it's refl- overs-
0: reflecting their beliefs, yes. their current beliefs,
1: and again, that's that's a massive oversimplification right, of the reality. Right. So, you know, in an ideal world, I would, I would hope, I would like to think that that Congress would do that. Um, the problem, I think, is that I don't know that we live in that world, right, where people have clear cut preferences and there's always guidance. So, my intuition is, you would probably see. Right, some sort of mix there, right? Where so if we think about the delegate versus trustee debate, I've always sort of sided with that. There's probably got to be some kind of a mix because there are going to be these scenarios where presumably, not be you know not as a sort of a negative statement about the public, right? But they're just not aware, right? or they just have underformed views on certain issues. New issues emerge, right? What do we do? Congress has to make a decision. Um, So I've always sort of leaned more toward that sort of it has to be a mix, but when there is right sort of clear-cut preferences, you should sort of tend to side with the people that got you elected. Um again, that like you could go down a whole rabbit hole of, you know, like, well, what happens if it's 50-50? And you know, so I recognize that in practice that 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 is a simple, simplified version, but that's sort of always where I kind of landed, I guess.
0: right. The next question is really about Congress's time. So, um, you know, there are different activities that that members engage in, whether it's in Washington or at home. You know, how would you allocate that time if you could dictate that? And should they be spending that time doing constituent service or should they spend it in doing legislation or should they be doing an oversight or raising money?
1: Well, yeah, I would certainly like to see them raise less money. I think that would be a place I would start. It's fascinating right because we just see such a massive influx of money and yeah it just doesn't really seem to change a a lot uh, in terms of sort of where outcomes end up being. No, I mean I, I generally do think though that that is you know so if we think about the the health and functioning of Congress, the amount of time members are spending raising money is should be troubling right That's sort of a normatively troubling thing. Um, I don't know what we can do to fix that per se, right. So I don't I don't have like clear-cut solutions. Um, on that. But, you know, in my ideal world, yeah, I would I would like to see members spend probably more time legislating, uh, first and foremost, um, if for no other reason than, you know, I think we've we sort of have found ourselves in these recurring situations where we, we sort of just kick the can down the road, so we think about the debt limit um, appropriations, whatever the case may be, um, where for a variety of reasons, we've sort of come up with partial solutions that sort of forestall and sort of, we you know, we, we get things running again, and then we eventually have to sort of readdress this issue. Um, you know, I think the showdown over the fiscal cliff is a great example. You know, you had John Boehner was, again, it ultimately ends up failing, right? But John Boehner recognized that you weren't gonna get a big deal without bringing both sides to the table and someone had to give on both sides um and i think the fact that that fails is is sort of a sign of how hard it is to get them to sort of take legislating i shouldn't say to take legislating seriously but how hard it is to get congress to that point where they're willing to take on those signs of big problems um again that's some of that's going to come back to uh, electoral so some of that's going to come back to individual preferences right i mean the parties fundamentally disagree on a number of issues that you would have to address to sort of solve some of those larger problems so it's even if they spend more time right it's not i think a guarantee that they're going to to address that but again this sort of recurring showdown over the debt limit this recurring showdown over government spending is troubling and again, that it ends up taking time away from solving other issues. So when you you have crises, you have to act, that's time you can't spend on other issues. So, um, you know, in my ideal world, I think that is where I would want to see them put the most time is addressing some of these sort of underlying sort of bigger system-wide issues. Um, because once, I think if they could do that, it would free up some time for some of these other issues, right, so things like constituency service, other policy areas. Um, but you know, getting out of that sort of cycle of crisis legislation, I think would be an important step forward for them,
0: so it sounds like more time legislating, less time raising money would be your preference. and <laughs> and legis. I'm assuming when you say legislation, that means more time in the district versus i sorry, more more time in d c versus the districts,
1: yeah. no, I think you know that that is obviously a, a tough trade-off. I don't know how I would weigh those two. I mean, again, they they both have important functions in terms of like what Congress is doing as sort of our, our larger governing institutions. Um, I mean, I will say, I think that the benefit of trying to address some of these larger structural issues is it would free up time for things like going back to the district, for instance, right? You don't have to be in Washington to address an impending crisis, right? Like, I don't think anyone really wants to find out what happens if, you know, some... You know, it was the whole idea behind the fiscal, fiscal cliff. Right? No one really wanted to find out what happens if we go, you know, we, we, we breach this. And so because I think those crises sort of force their hand and it just sort of keeps recurring, I think they have less time to do these other things. So I, I guess at the end of the day, I would say, yes, legislating to hopefully address some of those structural issues to then free up time for these other sort of activities.
0: Right. So, next question is really around uh, debate dialogue uh, in Congress, right? The, presumably, if they, if compromise is possible, or if they're able to learn from each other, right? Let's let's put that out there as a potential theory. If they, if we want that to happen, in what context should it happen? Should it happen on the floor? Should it happen in the committees? Should it happen in private settings outside of 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 the cameras? You know, what are your thoughts about where that debate dialogue should happen?
1: Ultimately, some of it would have to occur still, I think, in private. And part of why I say that is you know, compromise fundamentally comes down to right, a give and take, a back and forth. Um, and it's not that that can't happen on the floor. But I think the problem, right, this is sort of maybe one of those cases where too much transparency can be a problem, is that, well, what happens when your party or you know, members of your party outside of the institution Sort of realize all of the working parts that maybe happened, um, or you know what all was given up. Um, you know, will they focus on well? You you gave up this thing that I really care about, and sort of missed the larger goal. And so I think at some level, some of it has to be private, right? Like negotiation is easier when it's not on full display for everyone to see, uh, in some sort of basic sense. However, I mean, I think, you know, this is sort of the thing with when we talk about the Senate, right? The Senate has set itself up in such a way that, you know, it's it's can be kind of low cost to filibuster. You don't actually really have to go out there and spend the physical effort to filibuster. That's probably a problem, right? Because what does that do? Well, it incentivizes people to slow the process down, but then they're not actually really sort of then you know, doing anything constructive. So I think, you know, I don't know if I, who knows what would actually happen if we, we mandated a talking filibuster again, maybe maybe we would be surprised and members would love to hear their own voices for hours on end, I don't know. Um, but, you know, I mean, that is a case where if, you know, if we're going to muck the process up, then like, let's actually have genuine deliberation, right? They, they, I think there is value to say that just sort of providing a means of allowing members, right? Sort of Dual tracking legislation where members can filibuster or place a hold or if the case may be and we continue on with our way doesn't actually really get rid of the underlying incentives to not actually have that debate, not actually have that conversation. Um, But you know, I again, I also do think that there is an argument to be made, and this is where some of the frustration has come. You know, so if again, we sort of think about that trade off between different ways we can organize. A lot has been centralized in the party. Members are clearly frustrated. Um, and so the, I think the general challenge would become, how do you find this sort of right balance? Because at some level, I think you know, you've got to have some of that that's not occurring, because you got to keep your options open. Um, but you do, I think, have an incentive also to sort of signal that sort of openness to compromise, right? that, that openness to sort of that back and forth um in part because you know i think the you know there's a lot of research that talks about the sort of the ways in which right the public responds to sort of elite discourse or elite dialogue so if all they're seeing is this sort of very hyperpartisan, hyperpolarized discourse that's also a problem <laughs> so getting some more of that sort of making the actual you know congress still does a lot of things that are quite bipartisan despite sort of what makes the news there is still a lot that goes on that is quite unanimous and uh, you know, has a lot of cross-party support, um, but that doesn't always. You know, that's 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 not that's not what selling papers and drawing people into to cable news, right? So making that more transparent, I think, would be an overall beneficial thing for Congress.
0: So next question is about what fundamental what fundamental institutional improvement should Congress make within a fifty-year time frame? So, I
1: I think I like many congressional scholars would probably. Be on board with getting rid of the filibuster. Um, I think, sort of historically, it's probably done more harm than good. But you know, I also think that in doing so, we would, you know, the, sort of the, sort of the fear potential right, or like so, sort of ask like a yeah. Joe Manchin or of that, um, well, what happens when the other party sort of gets gets control and is in power? Um, and that's never struck me as like a, a great, super compelling argument. In part because that's right. That's sort of the And again, the Senate's weird because it's got just three classes, and it's not turning over entirely at at one time. Um, But I mean, that's also sort of part of what the elections themselves are for in the first place. Um, uh, We one would hope, right, is that um, people are making choices between competing policy visions. Um, So I, I, you know, I, I would very much like to see some sort of sort of change. Again, I don't know that it necessarily. It's magically going to make the Senate a, a more functioning place. I recognize that there's a very, very high bar to that happening. Um, uh, it, you know, who knows? We've we've had it for this long. Who knows if, if it's actually realistic? But I think that would be an important sort of step forward um, sort of making Congress a more well functioning institution. Um, I suppose the other and this is this is one I've sort of come around to a little bit. Um, and again, it, there's no easy way to do this under our current institutional rules. Um, but either limiting or potentially even, honestly, getting rid of the Senate, I think there is there can be arguments to be made for that. That pains me as someone who studied the Senate to say. Um, again, I think that that's even less realistic than the filibuster. <laughs> um, in part because it's you can't just do that at the margin. That's that's a fundamental rewriting of the Constitution. Um, But, you know, I I say that in part as as someone as well who studied the early Senate, and we sort of look at the arguments that are given for, like, why do we have a Senate? What was its function? It's not clear we ever actually really, the Senate actually ever really did what it was intended to do, um, whether that be as sort of a, so the proverbial saucer to cool cool the tea. Um, You know, it's not clear that it's done that. It sort of stands out from contrast to a lot of other places where you don't have this sort of co-equal chamber. Um, So that would be something that I, again, I don't know how you do that easily. (laughs) Um, But I sort of thinking about updating U.S. institutions. I mean, there's a reason why, I would argue, lots of, sort of countries that have had to sort of fundamentally rewrite their constitutions have not opted for the setup that we have. Um, The question would just be, could you, re- could you realistically do that without some sort of right massive revolutionary force? I am very doubtful.
0: That's a, that's a big one. That's a new one on the program. So uh, eliminating the Senate um, within 50 years. Yeah. I don't think it's possible for sure.
1: No, I, it's not going to happen, but uh just in general, I think it's, a lot of what has been going on recently we're, we're operating with 200 plus year old institutions and you know i think we have to be honest with ourselves that if we were to start from scratch we probably would make some changes right because they're 200 plus year old institutions that were designed for a particular historical context um now again you sort of we have a federal system so that raises a whole right, another issue with how do you sort of ensure representation um so there are certainly you know upper chambers in other institutions, other countries. However, right, they tend not to be as powerful as the Senate. They're not really co-equal branches in the way that the Senate and the House are. Um, so again, even if we rewrote the Constitution you know, in this sort of thought experiment, you probably have something like the Senate. It probably just is not as powerful as the current U.S. Senate.
0: Next question is, what book or article most shaped your thinking with respect to congressional reform?
1: I think there's sort of two answers to this question. So the first is David Mayhew's The uh, Congress, The Electoral Connection, which you already mentioned. Um, there's a line in the book, I think it's in the second section of the book where he basically talks about, you know, if members could start in, you know, write up an institution of their own design that served their electoral needs, it'll look an awful lot like the US Congress. Um, and that is something I've sort of taken to heart in part of thinking about sort of how congress has sort of designed itself right there's some basic outline there in the constitution but you know things like committees for instance right they're not in the constitution this is something that gets constructed as congress goes about its job of, of trying to figure out how to be a national legislature um and then uh, jeff jenkins and charles stewart uh, have a book fighting for the speakership um it's historical it's quantitative um, it's sort of in the vein of how i like to do my own historical work um, but it does a really nice job, I think, of sort of chronicling how, you know, some of the problems that we face. So you know, they, and Jeff was writing several blog posts around the speakership election, right? Of like, well, how does this fit into these other fights that we've seen over the speakership? Right? This is not a new thing, even if it might be you know, the first time the average person is thinking about this, because so often the speakership election is not very exciting. <laughs> it's, there's not much dissent. Uh, certainly it's been, I think it's been 100 years since we'd seen multiple ballots. Um, but that's also, I think, really helpful to sort of think about what are some of the recurring challenges and problems that Congress faces, right? That so often, you know, if we just approach something as sort of in the moment, we sort of lose and we lose sight of this sort of historical examples or historical precedents um know, we maybe don't fully understand sort of what's going to happen or what could happen or or how this fits into the larger context um so i think those would sort of be the two that i would pick
0: great well the last question is really about your research plans for the long run you know do you what do you have on the horizon and what do you uh what what what's capturing your imagination in the next few years
1: yeah so uh currently working on two book projects one is um currently back with the press. It's been completed. It's sort of going through its final reviews. Um, Looking at sort of the nationalization of elections and sort of the the short short version of that is if we sort of think about what informs either the outcome of an election or people's voting decisions, it could be these sort of very localized factors, things like incumbency, things like, yeah, he's a Democrat, but he's the right kind of Democrat for our district, right? So these very personalized sort of candidate-centered considerations, or it could be much more sort of national focus. It could be, I'm voting based on how I feel about the president, and so are you a, the president's co-partisan or not? It could be very much party-driven. So we sort of look at that across uh, a much longer time span. Um, a lot of work has focused on that recently because, again, we're in this period of really high party-line voting, which is consistent with this idea that elections are more nationalized and less sort of about local criteria, right? People will ignore what their constituent is doing or they'll ignore local conditions to sort of favor the partisanship. And we try to look at that across a longer time span, primarily just because this is not a new phenomenon. Again, so trying to sort of draw the lessons from the 19th century when elections are far more nationalized, sort of think about what, what that looks like vis a vis the sort of modern context. Um, and the other sort of project is looking at the early Senate uh, again. The sort of motivation, um, you know, there's this sort of pervasive idea that senators were meant to represent the states, um, and no one, at least in my sort of own personal opinion, has ever really given me a satisfactory. Answer. Well, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to represent a state? What did individual members think? And so, um, sort of looking at that question of you. Know, how did they go about their job of sort of representing and responding to um, the interests of the state? You know, how did they weigh the interests of the state, whatever that might be. So that abstract sort of concept versus the people that made up the state. Um, And that's sort of the other sort of thing that's currently occupying my time.
0: Excellent. Well, Professor Siever. thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure and best of luck with the new projects.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
0: Take care.